Welcome back to Manhunting, in which Waypoint and friends are working through the filmography of Michael Mann and examining his themes of labor, craft, capital, and dudes rocking. Today, as usual, we welcome Nextlander's Alex Navarro and Philadelphia's own Dia back to the mean streets of Miami and the deep blue waters of the Caribbean in Mann's 2006 film adaptation of his breakthrough TV hit. So, gang, uh, Miami Vice is the only... Michael Mann movie I ever stopped watching part way through, which I've, I've seen worse ones all uh-huh. the way through. Uh, but this one, for whatever reason, I, I bailed on it. I think it's because back in its original DVD release, I caught the opening of it. Either it was either on disc or cable. And I actually think it might have been cable because I remember the movie looking really, really bad, which I su- suspect was cable compression on top of the digital look that we're going to talk about that this film has. Uh, but even beyond that, I bailed on it before the central undercover operation uh, that occupies most of the film's runtime before that even got underway. I simply I, I could not follow what was happening. I could not really even process Colin Farrell's or Jamie Foxx's performances as that of Sonny Crockett and Ricardo Tubbs, uh, as they mostly seemed to brood or speak in jargon. And then we'd be off to some other baffling location. It was neither... It was neither the thrilling follow-up to Collateral I'd expected and was kind of primed for, nor was it in any way like attuned to the appeal of the original show, which, you know, at the time I remembered loving quite a bit. So I I turned it off and I forgot about it for about five years. So weirdly enough, years later, I'm at an XCOM event in New York covering the game's reveal uh, for PC Powerplay. Because I'm uh, working for an Australian outfit, I ended up being grouped with because PR always groups you with like whatever region press uh, like is from. I ended up being grouped with the Australian and New Zealand reporters for this entire weekend and ended up uh, discovering that uh, David Hollingworth, uh, which is a, a very cool person that I got to hang out with on that trip. And I think only the one time in my life, but discovered that uh, Holling- like David was a fellow man aficionado and so as one does we got to comparing notes on a bunch of films the conversation turned on miami vice and i basically gave the the opinion i gave a moment ago that it was a mess that it was a misfire and uh it was like waving the red cape to a bull david began preaching with the fervor of a convert turned missionary oh you haven't seen the director's cut well you haven't even seen the film uh and and really even you know, going into it, expecting anything like like the TV series or like Collateral was a mistake that Miami Vice uh, as a movie was something altogether different than the TV show or man's other work. It was an expressionist mural about Miami Vice and undercover work, not a not a straightforward narrative and, and so on and so forth. The thing is. I got my curiosity peaked, but when I did revisit it uh, via the director's cut Blu-ray a few years later, it, it clicked for me, and I came away understanding why there are now so many reappraisals of it uh, as a man masterpiece. I was not sure how I would feel about it this time around, and was very curious what y'all would make of it watching it today. So before we get into the broad outlines of the film, did we come away feeling like we experienced some sort of cinematic tour de force, or... Did we end up as bemused as audiences were in 2006? And, and frankly, in his interviews, as as Michael Mann himself seems to be by this movie. I have a tweet that I made to answer this. Okay. I don't know what movies are the bad Fast and the Furious movies, 
but I bet those are massively superior to Miami Vice. Okay, so the bad ones are two and four primarily. Uh, and I would say that Miami Vice is a better movie than two and maybe an equivalent film to four. I don't know if that helps anyone. I rate other than it considerably <laughs> more highly than either of those movies. But then again, I am I, I am like drunk off the Kool Aid. Yes, uh, I actually. It's no Tokyo I actually, Drift. I can tell you that it's not that. But I I will say I actually I I find four is actually pretty rough. If we're talking Fast and Furious, I think four has some for a movie that should be a big celebratory, like rating the band back together. It does not feel celebratory. Five is the one that finally makes good on that. Yeah. Uh, Alex, in terms yeah. of your reaction to re- returning to Miami Vice here. Uh, so I have only seen this movie once. And I when I saw it, it was, I think, the DVD release, which was the director's special edition. You know, it's not technically I don't know if it's technically a director's cut, but it's the one that has, you know, he reworked somewhat from the theatrical release. Um, and I watched it with my partner at the time. And both of us came away from it being like. We both really like Miami Vice. We both really like these actors. I really like Michael Mann. Why didn't this work? And, you know, I it has kind of kept me away from it for the most part since then because I, I never really even found a good footing for why I didn't like it. I just found it kind of off-putting and unpleasant. And watching it now, I understand why there is a desire to reappraise it because there is a certain quality to it that I think I can see people latching onto and and finding something to like about with it but I still think the it is it is a vibe in search of a movie it is like it feels like pieces of a really good pilot and a pretty good season finale of a show that eschews all the stuff in between that would est- either establish these characters or like really introduce you to what the hell is going on And, you know, knowing about his trouble history and sort of like the production behind it and all the things that went wrong, it shows in the product. I just think that it feels like my my takeaway from it was that this felt to me like an overcorrection on man's part of trying to establish that he still understands what is cool circa 2006. And I think he misses the mark, though, maybe not quite as far as someone of his age and pedigree could have compared to a lot of other filmmakers. So the thing I'll say about the, the cool part of it is I'm, the, the thing I'm not sure that I, that I'm not sure I agree with there is that this is such a dour and frequently joyless movie that I wonder if cool was it all on the mood board uh, while, I, while they're making it's it. Michael Mann. It definitely was. Like, it was <laughs> That's true. That's true. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Bush years were dour, joyless <laughs> years in American it, history. And the vibe and the aesthetic of the time was not one that was particularly celebratory or exciting the way that the 1980s and the Coke-fueled Miami Nights were. Like, the version of the world that he is portraying here is something a lot closer to collateral. And cool at this point is mm. stoicism and violence and... And guy, dude's not so much rocking as being, you know, like Abiding. these very stoic, <laughs> badass kind of guys. Yeah. And I think that is where it falls short because that vibe 
is antithetical to the one established in Miami Vice proper. Even the most serious episodes of the show just feel like celebrations compared to what is going on here. So before we get more into the movie, uh, mm-hmm. here's the plot in in a nutshell. And Such for, as it is. For all that, yeah, for all that happens in this movie, it's actually a very simple plot, and yet the movie can be very hard to follow. But here it goes. In the middle of an undercover operation, Crockett and Tubbs receive a call from a former uh, informant that they turned over to the feds as an intelligence source. He warns that the federal investigation has gone disastrously wrong. No sooner can the two Miami cops sound the alarm than their source has killed himself, and a pair of federal agents have been massacred by the Aryan Brotherhood in an ambush. Uh, as their contact with the FBI explains, it because it was a joint federal task force, Every agency involved is implicated in the leak that caused this disaster. Therefore, it is down to Crockett and Tubbs as the only people who are not part of that circle uh, to figure out how this went wrong. To do so, they have to infiltrate the powerful uh, drug cartel being operated by Jesus Montoya. And that means getting past uh, his intelligence chief, uh, Jose Yero, and winning the trust of his top lieutenant, Gong, uh, Gong Li playing Isabella, uh, a a woman who has a fatal weakness weakness for Colin Farrell at his most dirtbag. His interpretation of Sonny Crockett is, uh, yeah, just absolute lounge lizard uh, vibes. Definitely. In no time at all, uh, Crockett and Isabella have become lovers. Uh, Tubbs has begun to doubt whether Crockett has his head fully in the game. And Jose Yero is continually uh, prodding, trying to figure out why these guys seem so profoundly off, why they, in fact, kind of seem like cops. Uh, things come to a head when Yero basically deduces that Isabella is fully in love with Crockett, and that enables him to get the green light uh, to really put the screws to them by kidnapping uh, fellow Miami detective and uh, girlfriend of Ricardo Tubbs, Trudy, having her kidnapped by the Aryan Brotherhood and trying to force the the cops into uh, doing doing a deal with with Yero, and then almost certainly getting whacked afterwards. They managed to get ahead of the plan. They foil it in a nighttime gun battle down by the docks, but in the process, uh, it it is revealed that they are in fact undercover cops. So say was right. They've been lying to Isabella. And as the film ends, uh, Crockett takes Isabella away from the gunfight and basically dials up uh, witness protection, has her sent far, far away from him uh, as they as they are parted forever uh, while uh, Tubbs and Trudy are reunited uh, in in the hospital in Miami. We'll get into this in a bit more detail, but that's the that is the broad outline. I think right away, one of the things that is sort of a signature of this of this film is that the opening is very disorienting. They yes. oddly enough, I found it more disorienting in the theatrical cut, which weirdly enough is more to the point. Uh, the director's cut opens on a speedboat race. And I don't think the theatrical cut did. And the, the speedboat race is very much a well, we're allowed to do this, so we're going to shoot a bunch of dudes racing speedboats uh, along the uh, along South Beach uh, effectively. 
And that turns out to be in the service of uncovering a trafficking operation. And so the first 20 minutes we have in this movie are classic and misleading Miami Vice vibes. Speedboats going undercover as like cool, swaggy dudes hanging with drug lords and pimps. But not really. No? Like, no, because the the filming of the speedboats is so off from Miami Vice vibes. It is an intense, like, it's almost filmed like a fucking car chase. Yes. Like it or is not like, yeah, or a war movie. Like it is not filmed. Like here's like you know, it's it's not the opening to Miami Vice. It's not the opening to Silk Stockings. Even it's like this like really gritty, intense, high speed, lots of choppy cuts. You know, sh- like cl- tight shots of Jamie Fox looking pissed off in a cockpit of a boat. Like it's such a weird, jarring, like disorienting. I'll offer this too very much so. All like the speedboats. The thing that's noticeable too is, um, in Miami Vice, the TV show, this scene would be everyone out on open cigarette boats, wind yes. blowing in their hair everywhere. This does have like an almost military, like they are like bolted down inside uh, these like almost aircraft cockpits on water, uh, and speaking to each other through headsets. Like to me, I guess what it feels like it's this still feels like Miami Vice in some ways, but like maybe updated to those aesthetics that. That mm-hmm. Alex alluded to, but also trying to maybe highlight how much times have changed that like, yo, boat racing no longer looks like it like it once did. And none of this is going to feel maybe entirely like it did in the TV show. Um, but I think for me, I was sort of mis- misdirected here into thinking, well, we're still fundamentally in the world of Miami Vice. It's just that world has changed. Yeah. Uh, and. And I think I was I was sort of in that headspace right up until they get that phone call, at which point I always feel like from that moment onward, I feel like I'm racing to keep up with this movie, that things are are changing faster than the movie can even like lay out. And that's at once maybe a weakness of this film, but also is maybe a signature strength of it. I've, I I don't know. Um, how, Like, how did you evaluate this? This opening scene uh, as we have one operation that they take time to lay out. It's almost a mission impossible. Like everyone assigned their roles. They're they're setting up their sting. And then all of that is kind of blown up as they are called out onto the roof to have a conversation about something completely different over the phone. I mean, that's the part to me that feels very much like TV pilot. You know what I mean? It's the sense that there are these continuing adventures going on of these cops doing these things. And it's exactly the kind of way you would establish them in a TV show of like, hey, you know, we'll get back to this kind of case later. But for now, we've got to do this, you know, this other serious business going on. And I don't think it really works very well in this format because they spend so much time setting up this operation and this basically this human trafficking thing that is going on. And you're kind of like, Actually, I'd like some resolution on this because it seems like (laughs) these people are pretty fucked up and they're doing some pretty fucked up shit. But actually, we're just going to completely disregard this entire thing once Tubbs is done kicking this guy's ass in the club. And then we get to have some sick cell phone rooftop shots while Crockett very concernedly talks to this informant dude. Like, I just I think there are some cool notes in there. But as a a sequence to introduce you to what is going on in this movie and who these people are, it feels out of step. 
no, it's it's so funny that like you brought up the the the, the intro like the TV show thing because it does feel like you know when you get those like those TV episodes of like procedurals where like they're wrapping up a case or like they like they introduce another thing. And like you get the show where it's like, wait, no, I was actually interested in the thing you set up. Yeah. Can we, can we go back to the commercial break where where you had that other case that was actually more interesting? But like this one, we get like we we get the club scene in the first three minutes. Yeah, it's very the collateral scary. club scene. Yeah, we, yeah we, more or less. We get we get like yeah, we get the whole fucking you know we we get like God like this the super club scene right off the bat, and then that's it. We're yep. done. That is the most like, fun you see anyone have in this movie. Until Havana, no, uh, yeah. which, yeah. you know, Michael Mann, not so like, crypto-socialist. If mm-hmm. you're making if you're making the, the Jerry Bruckheimer Miami Vice, that club scene is your, like, that is, that's like, you know, that's your act three. Like, we are going to the club, and shit's going to get, like, break bad and get fucking real, and we're going to have, like, you know, a lineup of, like, Who's who of like Miami club music at the time? Like, we you're gonna have the whole have the whole Spotify playlist. Uh, <laughs> but got, so we, Michael Mann is officially too old for the club, but he does like that one Eminem track. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like what is on the soundtrack? It's like it's the Jay-Z Lincoln Jay-Z, Park. Jay-Z Lincoln mashup. Park that goes into Gold Frap. Yeah, there's the Nina Simone remix. Uh-huh. Okay, by the way, like, this is not a particularly egregious, like, it's it's not egregious here, but I actually curse everyone who made Sinnerman a just, like, completely washed uh, music cue in movies. Like, so many people used it all in the space of, like, five, six years. It's all the Thomas Crown Affair's fault. <laughs> it is. Like, you, that is whole that ground zero? Ones, that is ground zero for that song being in everything for 10 yeah. years afterwards. No, you're... Oh you're completely right. Because now I hear it and I'm like, well, you just had no ideas for how to score the scene. No, yeah. it, it doesn't feel like a club soundtrack. The Jay-Z track is like the closest you get to it. But this feels very much like grandpa got some CDs. Check this out. It does not have the new and hip and now vibe of a Miami dance club. And it's I, I just I want to briefly mention you talked about my, Jerry Bruckheimer's Miami Vice. That's bad boys. And honestly, and I think partial, like, I don't know, again, I don't think Michael Mann has ever said anything to this effect. This movie feels like an overcorrection away from Bad Boys. It like, is. Like, he seems annoyed by the concept of those movies and what Michael Bay deems cool, and he, he is trying to go in the complete other direction. He saw the scene of Will Smith following the stripper's heel, like, like foot yeah. uh, in the club scene while, oh, God, was it stabbing westward for that scene? I believe it was, <laughs> yes. It stabbing westward. It's as absurd as Michael Mann's soundtrack. It's just like two old dudes who like have a vision of what sexy Miami clubs are. But like, yeah, he saw that scene and got so pissed off. Well, so one other thing I would add, though, is so they abandoned this case. And you're right. One of the things that Tubbs is furious about is these are like the worst sort of trafficker, right? Like the, yeah. these are like uh, violent, abusive, uh, like sex traffickers. Uh, you know, the, 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 the archetype of the, of like sort of the character that always mobilizes moral panics around, uh, around like sex work. Uh, but it is, it's something that like tub, we, we, you know, we have the moment of like 
Tubbs lets it get to him and like hulks out in the club. But then the minute this other call comes, they they drop it entirely. But I do think that sort of completely cutting loose that intervention to help these women. Uh, I feel like that is something the film is knowingly doing and it sets up what is going to be like Tubbs's kind of crisis of faith midway through this film of like, what is the value of what we do? Like, mm-hmm. is this is this helpful to the world in any way or is it just, you know, activity of the state? Yeah, the thing is, and again, I, th- I think he's kind of working from, you know, he's he's already kind of put himself in the hole here by calling this Miami Vice. Yeah, because whether or not, you know, you expect the 80s level of cool to appear in a movie like this. There is an inherent expectation to something like that, especially something that is being made by Michael Mann, one of the people who worked on that show. And I just think that this vision of Miami Vice is too self-serious in a way that I think is just off-putting for something called that. Like, I don't think calling them Crockett and Tubbs did these characters any favor because it's not even that they feel like bad caricatures or anything or, you know, like a, a bad portrayal of those characters. They just don't really feel like characters like Crockett is like, yes, th- there's definitely like a scuzzy lounge lizard thing happening there. But I think that's just Colin Farrell at this point, because it doesn't feel like he's really giving a performance. He's just kind of there and just kind of grubbling his way through everything. And, and Tubbs is even less of a character. Tubbs is just Jamie Foxx reacting to things like nothing there isn't any real character trait to him beyond the fact that he has this relationship with uh, Naomi Harris's character. It is, he's just there. He says things. Sometimes they're cool. A lot of times they're not. And when he takes his shirt off, boy, he sure did get some personal training before this movie. That's it. There's nothing else there. Yeah. Like one of the, you know, another one of the the, the, the thoughts I had that I tweeted when I was, um, watching this for the second time because I watched I watched the director's or watched the theatrical release originally and then I watched the director's cut because I wanted to have the experience that you know we could expect the average person that like saw this originally had and see where Michael Mann went with it um it turns out it really didn't make a difference for me but I it's incredible that Michael Mann managed to take two of the most charismatic actors of this era and put them in a movie with absolutely nothing to do, no characterization, and next to no interaction with each other, and mouthfuls of jargon that reads faker than Star Trek bullshit. Yeah, a hundred percent. But like, like, there's, it's just, it's, it is, it's, 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 it's Jamie Fox. Jamie Fox, you know, Jamie Fox is upset about Naomi Harris having to do a tense scene. Yeah, that's like, I don't get Jamie Fox is upset. My girlfriend got kidnapped. I got Jamie Fox is upset about Naomi. Can't, Naomi Harris really had to do a tense scene, y'all. It's uh, yeah. I I think it, it is, it is weird how. I don't know how how much at odds with the original conception of Miami Vice this this film ends up being, and it, it does just kind of lose these characters uh in that it's partly I think the the joylessness run, that runs through it, uh. But at the same time, I do like, I do kind of enjoy the like i don't know gothic uh like uh gothic darkness gothic darkness of it i, I guess in, in some ways because like the moment they get this call from their former informant 
as he is speeding down the highway and is begging them like take care of my family like it the whole the, the whole feeling of the night shifts and we get yes we we do get our first like double barrel shot of jargon we get uh crockett calling into the fbi command center and it is all just like loads of call your sack i need him at the you know it's 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 all stuff like that uh we get the what was it the line it is it is 11 37 o'clock and this is the hand we have been dealt uh like vaguely like cool guy tier one operatorship but also completely nonsensical like what are it, you know there's no there's no poetry to it uh but no it is it is an attempt to kind of like characterize these guys as elite because they read the clock in a weird uh way with like i guess military precision it's it's the kind of line that like david mamet at his worst would write and uh-huh. the thing is this movie isn't even committed enough to doing that kind of thing it just comes out in these little fits and starts of i'm going to say something that sounds severe and cool but it just it's not even committed to that idea because it just kind of abandons it mostly for the like outside of a few scenes like I and I think that is a big part of my my problem with this movie is that it feels like it has it has no commitment to any particular tone or thing beyond just a vague sense of what was cool in this era. No, it has a it has a commitment. It doesn't have a, it does have a tonal. It has an aesthetic commitment and that is the commitment to the takedown sequences from 2003's Manhunt. Sure. Yeah, like that, when I was watching this movie, all I could keep thinking of was like, "Wow, did Michael Mann play a shitload of Manhunt? And if so, why is Brian Cox not narrating this?" So, the other thing that I would say, like, you know, we're going to get a, a full load of what the the tone of a lot of the rest of this movie is going to be from immediately. We're get a lot of loads. There's a lot of loads in this movie. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of loads that need no to be loads trashed. will be refused. Yep, like. The moment they puzzle out how they're going to track down their their informant, Alonzo, we get the time to get in a Ferrari and chase him down on (laughs) on the street. And so once again, it's like, yep, Miami Vice is doing the Ferrari thing. But boy, was I was I not expecting just the grim, panicky scene on the shoulder as they run him down. And uh, God, who who is it here? Um, John Hawks is just frantically trying to explain to them as he's trying to rush home to his to his to his wife that they turned him they figured out that he was working with the feds they turned him he blew the whole operation he's just trying to save save his wife and we get a a dizzying array of cuts here uh cross cuts as everything unravels all at once we get the creepy i guess manhunter-esque stillness of uh the aryan brotherhood dudes going through Alonzo's house with his wife dead on the floor, uh, you know, and, and also I guess similar to what happens to um, oh gosh, uh, the original driver was supposed to be there in Heat. Uh, similar. Oh, uh, Trejo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, similar sort of moment of like what happens at Trejo's house. Uh, that you know that that we don't see, but the the sort of stillness of the house is uh, you know, t- tells us enough. And then we get. An inc- <laughs> comically violent uh, <laughs> killing of these FBI agents down at this this dockyard as they're trying to do 
a handoff They're you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do a, a, an exchange of like cash and drugs, but it's more like a trial run to see if the relationship is going to, to work. But just as the feds are about to get in their car, the, you know, neo-Nazi on the other side asks how long you've been a fed and they try to drive off. And then we just see, I guess, I guess Michael Mann really was like, I want to have a, a Barrett 50 caliber sniper rifle uh, scene where we just like watch what that does to a car and people. And so we get an in the car slow motion camera of these two FBI agents getting riddled with bullets and literally blown apart along with huge pieces of the car as the 50 caliber rounds tear them apart. An arm goes like pinwheeling across the screen and it's impressive, which which like, no, like the, the, that that is a Miami Vice scene, though, like Miami Vice, the TV show would have had dudes show up and just unload the car with M16s. Right. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't they would have gotten just, the shot of the guy exploding. But yes, you're right. right. But like we would have the car that just gets like, you know, like there's someone there with the little squib board that's going like and like we see the car going pop, 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 pop. And we see, you know, you know, like, you know, fake bodies like shaking in the car kind of. thing. Yes. Um, but like, you know, and this is, so this is the update of that. This is like, you know, okay, you know, in the past, like, you know, now we do, we do the 50 caliber sniper mm-hmm. rifle that blows the car apart and we get the interior shot of the bodies ripping apart too. Like, okay, that is, that is, that's bringing that into the, you know, the 21st century of Miami Vice. And like, but also I'm, the tone is off. Yeah. Like, Pardon? The tone is also off, though, because, like, Miami Vice typically would still be celebratory of this. And, like, well, I could go, like, fuck, yeah. The 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 rest of the movie is telling me that, like, you know, you going, fuck, yeah, about the 50 caliber sniper rifle in this moment is wrong. Yeah. Michael Mann's allowed to like it, but you're not. Like, yeah, like, seriously. Yeah, there, there is there, there's there's an element of disgust to a lot of this. Like, this is a movie that I, I I think is in a lot of ways about sort of it finds a lot of the squalid in a way that Miami Vice would sort of pay lip service to, but also be like pretty cool, though. Right. And mm-hmm. it, it was. And and here it still kind of is like this. The sequence, you, you know, it is memorable right like there just were there are not many films where you're put inside the car and you watch the slow motion like the entire thing turn into confetti uh and, and dust as it's literally pulverized by incoming fire and then you get the the moment alonzo realizes that his they killed his wife anyway that he, he you know betrayed this whole operation for nothing like before the film almost has a chance to react he steps in front of a passing semi and we get the cut to just the red smear coming out from behind its rear wheels. And then before that, even we can fully process that we're cut again. We're, we're away. Yep. Mm-hmm. And as far as like setting expectations for what's coming, I think this is actually a very effective opening. Cause I, this, this is how a lot of the rest of this movie is going to feel. It's going to be like, there's going to be classic Miami vice, vice stuff happens, but it, it's the last second is all going to be tainted and weird uh, in, in, in some way. And I don't know. I, I, I still like at this point, it wasn't too long after this. I originally turned it off. Cause I, I fundamentally, I was still back on the question. Like who's Alonzo? What happened in the nightclub scene? Are we going to do anything about the, the traffickers? 
now I'm a little more willing to just go along for this ride uh, and, and just sort of understand that it's going to be this like nightmare of undercover stuff going wrong uh, for for a lot of this movie. And we get the. I think maybe the th- one of the things that makes me angriest in this movie, honestly, uh, is that they have the meeting in the wake of this entire uh, debacle. They have the meeting with the FBI agent. Uh, Kieran Hines. Yes. And it makes me very angry when Kieran Hines is this wasted. Because he's Dracula. And he looks like it. Why? Why is Kira Hines not just like secretly Dracula in every movie? Because every do, time uh, I see him, do on we things, ever see or the devil? One of the two. Yeah, he's one of the two. Do we ever see FBI agent Fujima uh, in the <laughs> also, day? No, Fujima. <laughs> Fujima. <laughs> That's not an Irish name. No. 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 But look, America's melting pot, and sometimes surprising things and sometimes uh, a dracula is irish with you know the last name fujima and sometimes hugh benny is japanese you just you don't know you never know but all kieran hines is given in this movie to do is like basically hand out the assignment and like and test the capacity for human hair to soak up oil god i i'm with you kieran hines being wasted is not a thing that should ever happen because he's too he's too willing to go for whatever in just about anything you give him, he's not a boring actor by trade, and he's boring here. Like, there's, other than him, like, again, it feels like a character that is meant to be a semi-antagonist in six episodes of a 24-episode run. It's not a guy you can hang significant scenes on in a movie because he doesn't do anything. All he does is just kind of squirm a little when things aren't going his way. There's nothing, again, there's nothing to this character, and there's, he has no meat to work with. It's it's so funny because everyone, every actor in this is, like, fucking good. Like, yeah. they're all just really, you got incredible lineup for this movie, and then none of them have anything to do. No. Like Naomi it's Harris so and Justin Theroux as like the minor cops, like that could have been really interesting. Those are both really interesting actors. Naomi Harris gets a little bit to work with, not a lot, and Justin Theroux might as well not even be there. I, yeah, I didn't realize that Justin Theroux was even there for most yeah. of the like the the first time I watched the movie, I didn't realize that he was there at all. And then when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, wait, what the fuck? So the second time I watched it, I was like, holy shit, he's that you're, guy. You're not in here. And then like you know, I mean like. Gina and Trudy, why are why are we here? Like we, <laughs> we cast two like fully competent actresses in these roles, and it's just like, why are you here? You both have like like maybe two minutes of lines tops. No, and and the, and Naomi Harris makes the most of them. Yes, mm-hmm. and you come away like I I would have enjoyed a more procedural version of this film that does involve her character a, a bit more. Like when she loses it on there. CI that they're working with as he's like starting to try oh, to squirm so away from them. Good. And she finally just loses her temper and is like, fuck that. And then like and Elizabeth Rodriguez with the like the the fucking like rifle aimed at the dude's head later. Like, mm-hmm. like the two of them fucking kill the scenes that they're given. They're only given like two scenes. Well, yeah. there's and and there's a lot of evidence. And he, like honestly, this is a weird v- part of this movie. There's a lot of evidence that uh 
you know, Crockett, Tubbs, um, you know, their 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 boss uh played by uh uh Barry Henley, they all they all might suck a little bit, right? Like a lot of things go wrong here. Uh Castillo. Castillo Castillo is still their lieutenant, but like it's a comedy of errors at times. For as grim as this movie is, there's a comedy <laughs> of errors quality to parts of it uh, that do not afflict uh, like Trudy and Gina as much, but appears to be across the board like incompetence or misjudgment uh, running running through a lot of this. Uh, so, you know, they they realize what has they they know who they were investigating. They know what's gone wrong here. They now have to take up the, the 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 blown investigation, and that means getting in with uh, getting in with this with this cartel and the the Jesus Montoya's cartel. And this is a part that, again, like a little bit confusing. In order to basically fill, they have to create a vacancy in his organization. So we get them ripping off a bunch of smugglers and blowing up their boats. And the part that really stunned me is the audacity of to set up the next stage of the operation. They will then go back to try to present the stolen goods as like a mark of good faith, which is struck me as a, a wild swing uh, to yeah. try and land. But anyway, they create this vacancy in the organization. They, they, they reach out and they, they make contact uh, with not with, with with the Montoya cartel, but really who they're heading into Haiti to see is uh, Jose Yero. And he is, again, like the counter counterintelligence chief for the cartel. And I think this is one of the major points of this movie is that. <sighs> maybe one thing that it is concluded that has changed since the drug war of the 80s is that effectively the cartels are state actors. They had right. Like, we get a taste of this in in Collateral, where uh, Bardem has that scene where he outlines all the steps that the organization took to generate this intelligence. And here we get in in the form of of Yero, uh, we we get this idea of the cartel kind of having its own CIA operating inside of it. Uh, having its own like ability to turn off cell networks at will, uh, having ability to like take control of infrastructure and like basically dominate uh, countries, and that is embodied in John Ortiz's Ortiz's Jose Era, who I think Ortiz is an interesting actor, and I think also the bad yeah. guys in fa- bad guy in Fast and Furious. What in the in original? Four. Yeah. Before. I totally forgot. Yeah. Really showing you know his range here. There's a bit of like. He gives off this vibe of like an honest to God nerd mm-hmm. who has fallen so deeply and then so good at a life of crime that he's become like a terrifying kingpin in his own right, but still has kind of a bookish quality to him. And so we get this we get this nightclub scene that is itself an adaptation of, a, of one of the better scenes in Miami Vice. I think there's a lot of this movie that is basically smugglers blues mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, an episode yeah, a lot of what they do. From. Ca- a lot of what they do to kind of set up the operation feels like it is at least riffing on the stuff from smugglers blues. 
but we get the classic like sit down across the table and make your pitch and it's a lot of <laughs> a lot of alpha talking nonsense uh that we that we get and it's very funny because you know if there's i guess if there's a slightly tragic quality to jose Yero, it is that fundamentally he's not wrong like he's just like he's just gaslit through this entire movie as he sits there and he realizes like he goes to tubs you know okay look you seem all right i'm getting a bad vibe off your partner and he cut to cut to uh colin farrell's crockett i too get a bad vibe off this guy <laughs> it's like it is it is extremely bad vibes and again it's hard to tell how much of that is on the page versus Colin Farrell literally being too drunk to remember he filmed this movie, but which is something he has said. Like he, he has he said that out loud. I'm not making after this film. I'm not making a crack about his alcoholism. Like he literally has said, I've I forgot large portions of filming this film because I was drunk through most of it. Yeah, but David Bowie said that about like you know, um, let's dance, and that was still a better album than this is a movie. David Bowie is a more talented artist than Colin Farrell. And I say that is not a Colin Farrell hater. I'm just saying I think there is there are scales we're working on here. Okay, fair. There but there is a what what is the way to put it? Like uh in the TV series, the vibe like Crockett has is like he's all good old boy, Southern charm, uh, et cetera. Don Johnson has like a slightly like winning scuzziness to him that like is shot through every scene. And yeah, like Colin Farrell's approach to the character, maybe it's just informed by the circumstances he's making the film film under uh, really is just that this guy is like checked out indifferent. Yeah. Uh, and completely impulse driven. Like well, it's yeah. not a detail that appears anywhere in the movie, and I'm I'm not sure that it's even a character trait of this particular Crockett, but it does feel like the difference between divorced in the 80s and divorced in 2006. Because Crockett was a icon of divorced guy yeah. TV back then. Because back then it wasn't a sad sack thing. It was a a pain point, a thing that made him you know, brooding and sensitive while he went out and did his cool guy shit. Whereas by 2006, most divorce guys were just incredibly sad. And 80s, 80s Colin Farrell took or eight, 80s Colin Farrell, 80s, 80s Crockett. Crockett took care of his boat. Yes. Mm -hmm. Early aughts Crockett. No, no. <laughs> that thing's that the thing's last time he emptied the chemical toilet on that thing. Beer. Oh, my God. That boat needs to sink immediately. You need to get a new he's boat. Just, he's just found in their dad half eaten by Gator. Uh, but also, but we need to we need to take a moment for it's not fair. Like, look, Colin Farrell struggles with an American accent at the best of times. It is not fair to put whatever accent they tried to tell him to do for this movie on Colin Farrell. I don't know what it is. I can't identify it. Like, I, I remember I remember one time I was in a bar in Scotland and I had met, you know, this there was an actor there and he was talking about how, you know, uh, across all of the UK, actors, you know, no matter where they were from, they were all proficient in like 5,000 different accents because you had, you had to know all of the regional accents, you know, from like, you know, from like the, the bottom of Ireland to the top of Ireland to the bottom of the UK to the top of the UK, like, 
you had to know so many different regional accents perfectly. And so I believe in my heart that Colin Farrell actually has mastered those. And he simply did not have room for an American accent ever. Yeah. And he was unwilling to give up, you know, a specific like, that might Welsh cost you regionalism. A role. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can't have that. He wasn't going to give up any one of those. No. The, the smallest little like, like neighborhood accent. He was not going to give that up. For an American accent well, ever. Hang on. It might also be brilliant smoke screening around Gong Lee's Isabella. Mm. Like this we might do need be, to talk about that at some maybe point. Maybe it is an early decision to be like, you know what? Everyone's got to sound weird in this movie. Well, yeah, Jamie Foxx, uh, you know, he... There are parts genuinely. It, it, I'm not clear what movie he is in, uh, but like I, I don't know. There, there, there's there's sort of gestures at you know maybe a movie that divides the load a little more equally. Like we do have the scene with him and Trudy, uh, for instance, like laying out the relationship, and and we get the uh, you know both the like the the gag about him pretending he prematurely ejaculated and it's just where he, like they start having sex immediately he's like ah oh, great and there's that like long pause and there's i'm just fucking with you it is is this the only like funny sex scene in michael mann's career is this the only time he's ever found well like, he doesn't humor find he doesn't in, find use for that humor anywhere else in this movie because no. we get his greatest hits collection of things Michael Mann thinks are hot, which is one fucking in the shower into having weirdly athletic girl on top, but like arms out, like yes. very, very yes. posed sex. But yes, with, that one uh, little with bit. With a poorly chosen soundtrack. Yes, but that one little bit, you're right. That is 100% the only time Michael Mann has even like indicated that maybe sex could be funny. Yeah. I just also uh, want to it say is. it's really unfair to all of these actors to be filmed on the Thompson Viper film stream camera, um, like in such exquisite close up. Because also Michael Mann really likes to zoom the fuck in on body parts mm -hmm. when he's like filming his sex scenes. So I guess he doesn't have to show the actual like mechanics or arrangement of sexual postures that much. But like, you know damn way to throw Naomi Campbell and Jamie Foxx's skin under the bus in an era before we really got into the digital body paint. Yeah. Just mean, I'm just saying fair. The, um, the, the way he shoots this whole movie. In fact, I, I like, Everything's always a little too close is how a bunch of it feels like he is leaning. I would I I thought collateral might have been. You would think collateral be like maybe the outer extent of of how documentary style he wants a movie to feel. And this is actually significantly more so. No, it's, uh, it's really weird because like, you know, and I love I love a tight shot. I love me. You know, first of all, I, you know, like I don't like widescreen four by three is the ideal format. Well, really six by six, but you're talking photography, but four by three for like film and movies is the ideal for me. And I really, you know, I love an 85 millimeter lens, you know, in the like, you know, in a room that's not even 10 feet across, like get up in that shit. But like Michael, man, is just like, he's got, um, oh God, who was the photographer for this? 
Um, it's the same DP Beebe. from 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 Collateral. Yeah, Dion Beebe. Um, he is so like every shot is so tight. It's wild, except for like you know when we want to get the super thirty five high speed way the fuck out shots. Right. Um, but like and so he, much, he of never this wants is, that camera on a stable platform. No, like we are no. constantly like <laughs> moving over people's shoulders, like you know examining things and. I, I actually like it quite a bit. I think it contributes to the film's like overall unsettled uh, sense of perpetual disorientation. And I, right. And exactly. And for that reason, I think it actually like that's one of the things that I think updating, you know, if if we are to think of this film as a commentary on uh, Miami Vice from the 80s as Miami Vice from the aughts, like, you know, uh, we're 20 years into the future and what has changed and having that incredibly unstable, like, you know, just like just rickety camera. Mm-hmm. I think that is that is the correct that that is the update because that's what happened. You know, we went from the doll from everything being a dolly shot to put this camera on the shakiest motherfucker you can find. Um. And I think I think Michael Mann like that's that is a correct adjustment um, for 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 this film. It's just well, I, and it's, I think maybe you'd also say like in in places like the TV show, you sort of project yourself into these frames. Like the characters are often posed in these ways of like cutting iconic figures, you know, with, mm-hmm. within the frame, having the the slow motion moment or uh, sort of the you know the perfectly composed moment of like brooding or something you could sort of project yourself into it and i think like one thing this this the next step this movie takes is no we're actually going to put you like in their shoes as best we can and you are going to be constantly like you know a bit in a panic trying to work out what it what is happening what is it that surrounds you uh and, and that is something the movie continually denies you to some extent is a a good sense of 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 where you stand and where the action is because it's constantly shifting and I think so it's, it's really funny that you did like a good sense of where you stand because I was, was just thinking like you know like while you <laughs> I was like my, my my thought in my head was I feel like you know this is the movie where Michael Mann has like been progressively getting like you know relying less and less on blocking scenes yes and that like this is the movie where Michael Mann was just like let's not block anything. Fuck blocking. Blocking's for stages. That's why then that's why he had to uh, So just no one knows where to stand, literally. Uh so but we also so we we get the basically I'm holding a thermal detonator moment with Jose Yero where he's like, I don't trust you, maybe I'll dump you both. And uh we get the the crocket, they reveal they're they're holding grenades, and mm-hmm. he gives the like They'll be talking about this for years, man. They're gonna come in here and be like, "What's that fucking Jackson Pollock on the wall?" No, that's the that's the last remains of Jose Yero. Uh, it's good shit, but this is where Isabella enters the story as a figure from the periphery. She overcomes their misgivings, greenlights the operation, and I think it is that night they are told to go back and wait in their hotel. And this it is that night that they are sort of convoyed to the airport i guess to meet for the first and only time jesus montoya uh and like 
think it's a very cool scene. I think this is I think this is the one scene for me that I'm like, this actually feels kind of fucking rad and scary in a way that they want it to feel. Yeah, you know, they're 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 plunged into this night, like their cell phones go dead, but even feels like they just they're just moved outside like any trace of the light or the warmth of of the city. And yes. they are just like out in out in the in the darkness and they are taken to meet the wizard uh, effectively uh they see that it has it has the same feel of like every you know like dracula and, and frankenstein movie where the villagers at a certain hour all completely disappear from the streets and this makes me flashback so this feels like i think this is how he wanted calderon to feel in the tv show yes uh, luis tosar's uh like jesus montoya Honestly, he might be out Bartiming Bartim uh, in this uh, in in the scene as he basically gives them the like I'm going to tell you this once. This is the only time we will meet, and just some of the, the some of the lines like there are little flashes of of you know poetry here. Is he is it to me? It sounds like Spanish translated into English uh, as mm-hmm. he is as he is ex- talking to him. He says, you know, if you do what you say and you don't let me down, uh, you will prosper beyond your wildest dreams. Um. I extend my best wishes to you and your families, uh, which mm-hmm. is both an implicit threat, but also like he's courtly in a weird way, but like utterly terrifying. Like he's a one note character, but it is the scariest note he could be playing. Like, I think it is it is absolutely honestly one of the movie's failings. I mean, I don't think that they we needed a huge dose of him, but the fact that he sort of becomes a non factor in the story yeah. once the plot kind of, you know, kind of starts winding to its conclusion. I it's not that I think they had to kill him at the end for it to be a successful movie, but I think the fact that it just becomes Yarrow's show and then we kind of forget about the really fucking scary guy yeah. that showed up earlier is a bummer. Well, it's it's so weird because so much of this movie is like, you know, like I I I my joke about John Ortiz is that like he heard the that like the 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 lug was meeting and he thought it was Latino instead of Linux, <laughs> but he didn't matter anyway because he was like you know he was so hyped to go to the like the Latino Linux user group, like that he's like the secret mastermind villain behind all this, but we never get like the tug of war because he's like we. This is the thing, this movie needed to be about Gina and Trudy. And like it needed to be about like you know, like Euro's love, his his homoerotic love yes. for Montoya. Montoya. But we yes. never we never get that. It we doesn't never, have that gear. We never get we never get the homoerotic love. Nor do we get the I'm going to usurp him and take his thing over because I am secretly Linux on the desktop 2020. Mm-hmm. Like you know. These spreadsheets like, are how is the future and like the, he, I, I control them. We never, yeah, we never get either of those. So like we get Euro, like we get two unsatisfying villains. We get the kind of like, you know, we get the El Bucho who never has the upper, you know, the opportunity to act. Like he's never calling hits. He's never doing anything. He's not even shown to be like still while murder is happening around him. But like then we also get like the Euro who like is doing all this action, but he's just too much of a nerd to like ever. He's like in love with Montoya to like ever do anything that like isn't like, you know, in service of 
this guy, but the movie can acknowledge that he's doing all this in service of this man that he loves and has worship for at like the same time as like, you know, he's also not usurping him. So it's like, what, what are we, what doing? is the relationship even? What is, what is going on here? Do something. The movie will do something for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. The, um, I, there's a version of this movie that like does like lean on these court politics. There's a movie that's that, so fucking gay in this mm-hmm. And it rules. Yeah. Uh, the other problem, I think, is that... So their whole scheme here that they launch next with the the first run, we get some great, like, you know, the, them flying in under the cover of the two uh, the other aircraft. Like, it's great. You know, just planes are cool. Some gorgeous landscapes as they as they fly out of uh, Columbia. It's, it, it's good stuff. But it's upon landing, they claim, like, somebody tried to rip us off. And this is where they do the thing where it's like, the shit that they ripped off the other smugglers, they now present uh, as something they found. And they claim that they came under attack themselves and they present this as a way to backfoot Yarrow. But to me, like it just for an organization that's paranoid, the minute on the first run, this me- this much weird shit happens. These guys are dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, just God. Dead. Yeah. Oh, They're yeah. Dead. Like that's that's a thing you introduce after you've got a few runs under your belt and you really want to establish like, OK, we're good now. First time that is every goddamn red flag you can imagine. And and Yarrow is there being like, are you kidding me? Like, no, no, we're not. You just came up with all this and you don't even want us to pay a finder's fee. You're just gifting it to us is a gesture of goodwill. <laughs> no, this is bullshit. Like I'm calling time on this. Yeah. And the minute the movie can't let him do that, the minute Isabella weighs in and is like, no, like, it's all good. Like, we'll we'll continue as planned. And then <laughs> walks off down toward her boat and uh, Crockett stands up and goes after her and is like, I'm a fiend for mojitos. And she was like, and she's like, I'm going to throw my life away for this man, for this. I am going to risk it all for this dirtbag. The minute all that happens. And by the way. I like some of what's coming. I, I like the romanticism of, of parts of this movie, but I think the casualty of it is Gero, despite the fact that he will end up being the primary antagonist here and will end up being the one who like green lights the, uh, you know, attack on the, on the operation. He no longer feels like a worthy adversary or a strong one because he is no. so neutered in this sequence by having his obviously well-founded misgivings once again, just stepped on and overruled for no apparent good reason. No. Yeah. And it, this is, oh, go ahead, Alex. I was just saying, you know, I mean, it's because Isabella holds this, you know, outsized influence over everything. And, you know, girls will say things like, I know a place, and they're, it's literally Cuba. <laughs> so, one of the, th- this is, this is going to be a weird tangent, but one mm-hmm. of the things this made me think of, like Isabella made me think of, was um in the when when master and commander was being released uh-huh. the trailers always had this sequence that like included like you know it was like you know like the adventure the 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 history blah 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 and then it's the romance and it showed the clip of like the one like you know brazilian no the girl who shows gal. up with the merchants 
Yeah, yeah. But the trailers all were like the romance. And I was just like, oh, okay. I don't remember that from any of the novels, but sure. And so like when I went to see the movie and it was just like, oh no, this is just a bitch. She's just like in a boat just being like, thanks, smile, thanks. It's been great trading with you. Bye. Uh, I'm a pretty indigenous Brazilian girl. Peace out. Um, But like... Miami Vice is the movie that saw that it was like betrayed by the lack of romance <laughs> in my master and commander. And it was like, we're going to make good on that because we're going to have this like random bitch show up that is going to like put aside all good reason to oh. like hook up with this shitty, greasy white guy who you could find anywhere. And that's the thing. Tubbs is never, or Crockett is never like, a sexy dude in front of her. He never does anything cool. He never says anything cool. Like the best thing we got is the grenade scene. But honestly, Jamie Foxx is the fuckable character in that. Oh scene. yeah. And in general in this movie, but that, yeah, but he's that, wiped up. She doesn't, know she doesn't that. know that. Or maybe she does. Maybe she was the one who was like, send yellow roses. Um, God, that scene pisses me off. But anyway, uh. We'll get to that when we get to that. Um, well, yeah, but like the, the scene is, where they send Trudy the roses. Oh, I'm so mad about that Wait, scene. Well, that scene pisses it. me off more than anything. Rob, you get $500 of yellow fucking roses out of fucking nowhere. And you don't notice one that there's a card two that something's been written on the fucking card. That's true. No, this is the most insane fucking scene I have point. ever seen in a movie. The fact that Trudy is going to look at those roses and be like, oh my God, I love these fucking flowers. First of all, who the fuck sends yellow roses? Yellow yellow is like the friendship rose. It's like the I love you chaste rose that you send to like someone that you don't want to send fucking calla lilies to because no one's died. It's like, roses, I'm sorry about your the ones kidneys. you send to Euro because you are trying to friend zone him. Like seriously, they are. First of all, if the guy that is banging you, the guy that is ejaculating inside of you sends you yellow roses, there is a sign. He is gay and he is fucking Jose Yero. But also, read the fucking card, you <laughs> dumb bitch. Are you fucking kidding me? She didn't read the card. She has to be yelled at the way I'm yelling now into my microphone. And like that, like to read the card. That, you Are know you what? That kidding is me? This is the she's most, like, this you sent me these roses. And it's like, I that's was, a lot of roses. I was ready to stop watching the movie at this scene and just be like, Rob, I'm sorry. This movie got too fucking stupid. I can't watch this anymore. That's fair. But it does set up a diner scene. So who's to say <laughs> if it's good or not? Uh, it's not a great diner scene. No, it's not it's a not. great diner scene. It's a bad diner it's scene. It's a diner scene, but it is not a great one. That is true. Like, they they basically decide they're stick with the plan and and go ahead with it. You're right. That yeah, it's look, there's this I like this movie. There's there's parts of, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I can argue for it. It's like a, a, one of the, the the greater uh man works. I think the the reappraisal can go too far. Uh but <laughs> we do have moments like I I am so divided about this scene with Isabella and Sonny because on the one hand, you are leaning into the preposterousness of like this Sonny Crockett mm-hmm. being this like icon and just like absolute catnip to a woman like Isabella. We are running headlong into the fact that Gong Li was cast knowing that she would have to learn her lines phonetically uh, because she does not speak English. And okay, so- but like. 
that's what we did with um, um, Antonio Banderas in Interview with the Vampire. So that doesn't really hold water for me because that was like no human being has been sexier on screen than Antonio Banderas doing the the candle thing with his fingers. Yeah, you're like, not wrong. Sorry that you you have to work really hard to top that. So I understand the like whatever. If you have to learn the lines phonetically, fine. Um, well, this thing, like, like it, it doesn't bother me that much in terms of like I think I don't think Gong Li is a problem in this movie that much. Uh, I think there's a she's not the problem. No, <laughs> but I will say some of these scenes uh, do run up against the combination of like her slightly flat line readings and then Colin Farrell's overall flatness through through a lot of this. We get the scene on the boat where they sort of feel each other out and, you know, she makes clear that she's her she's her own woman. She's a she's a girl boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have, we didn't have this word back in 2006, but this is basically her That's pitch is like pretty much what she I'm is. a girl boss uh, for for the cartel. And like, yeah, there's just a lot of like there's a lot of things about this that are like kind of the weakest points of the film. And yet also, fuck me. I love it. I love I love the boat. It's. Okay, it's the one, the boat and Cuba, the whole like t- 10 to 12 minute sequence that goes through all of this. It is a miss for me, but it's a big swing in a way that I feel like a lot of this movie is not. It is trying for some wild shit to really kind of to emphasize the devil may care aspect of both Crockett's personality and sort of just the way that he approaches everything. But it it's not good necessarily. Like there is no real chemistry between Farrell and Gong Li. And I've seen some people say that like Gong Li is hard to actually understand in this movie. Watching it this time as someone who is very sensitive to the horrors of current audio mixing in movies, I didn't have any trouble understanding her. The yeah, problem yeah. with her, her performance is that it's just a little uncanny. She's emphasizing words in not a way that an, a, a, a person who speaks a Western dialect would. Her emphasis sometimes feels very Chinese in the way that she she hits certain syllables of words. And it just doesn't feel like a conversation is happening. And that is where I think it starts to fall apart. And even when they get to the sexy times, it like Gong Li is a very magnetic actress and Colin Farrell can be, but they are repelling one another when they start actually getting together. There is nothing there, and it is so nothing that it is actually pushing them away. Well, it's it's so funny because Gong Li speaks English in this movie like someone who is, speaks English as a third language, right. which is what Gong Li's fucking character is. Yeah. Gong Li's character is like, you know what? She grew up, she's Chinese and she grew up in Havana. A dislocated yes. child of multiple communist revolutions. Like, yeah, like, like dude. Like her parent, her mother was killed in Africa when she was there serving yeah. there as a translator. Yeah. Like what? Like, of course, you know, that's this is what she should sound like. This is what someone is speaking English as a third fucking language would sound fucking like. I don't know why anyone like this is a deal, but I remember when Googling it and it was like a big fucking deal for people. No, Colin Farrell's like, no, Jamie Foxx's like weird, like Creole accent is like more of a fucking deal. Like Gong Li is perfectly fine. 
Like, Colin Farrell is definitely more off-putting, I think, Dude, than, than Gong seriously. Li is in this movie. Like, Gong Li at least feels like, if she isn't nailing the, like, the line deliveries, she at least feels like she understands the thrust of the character and is trying to do shape it into something with the tool set that she has. The thing is, I think Gong Li does nail the line deliveries. Yeah. I think the lines are just stupid. They're bad lines. That is absolutely true. Yeah, I think, um... Well... I think the, the the lines are not amazing. I think the, the the weird thing is, I think like the as is often the case for a man movie, the sex scene is weak. Uh, I I also think it's very funny that they get to Cuba, and to me the vibe is very much like, yeah, I too like Buena Vista Social Club, uh, <laughs> and that's kind of the we're gonna go clubbing. And bam, just put that album on. Uh, and that's and that's Cuba, baby. Uh, to me, the, the film begins to regain a lot of ground. Uh, you know, we I, I, I do love the shot of as they pull away from the boat and the perfectly blue waters and the soundtrack coming up. I, I love all that stuff. But to me, like things begin to come together a bit better as they spend a very domestic, quiet day as like they fill each other in on their life stories. Her her is true. His partially fabricated or at least heavily alighted around the fact that he's a, he's a cop. Uh, but that stuff I find a bit more like it's honestly in those quiet moments that I begin to find them far more convincing as people who are falling in love uh, as, as they sort of settle into like, let me tell you more about my life, like away from all this, that stuff I think sells this a bit better the problem is that I think maybe the the pace at which all this unfolds needs to sell you on this idea of there being like a great, almost magnetic, romantic attraction between them that, yeah, like to your point about them repelling each other, that is kind of how it feels in in some of those scenes. Well, it, it feels it, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, this reminds me of like. You know, the two of them remind me of like the Anakin and Padme. Yes. Yes. Like in the Lake Country on Naboo, like I keep like I'm like, I'm like, okay, you need to convince me that the two of them have fallen absolutely ridiculously Romeo and Juliet after one night in love with one another. And the movie can't do that. No. It and doesn't I don't feel that, quite as hard as like Natalie Portman's visible no, distaste no, no. for like the, the, Anakin. The, at least like you know, it is clear that Colin Farrell would bang the shit out of Gong Li if given the chance and that like Gong Li would probably like, you know, take him up on that. She might slum it one night. Sure. Yeah. Like we all like, you know, it's just like, OK, I've never slept with an Irish guy before. Um, and like as details in like 2003, you know, you know, the there was an issue of details that I bought in 2000, like, I think it was like 2003, 2002, 2003. Um, but it was like, Colin Farrell will sleep with you. Um, and it just said Colin Farrell and like, it, like it's this very tight crotch shot on the cover. And I bought it for a friend. Um, I genuinely bought it for a friend. But there was an anecdote in it where Colin Farrell puts a potted plant in his crotch and talks about how this is the difference between Dublin girls and Irish girls. And he puts the potted plant in his crotch and he's like, this is Irish girls. And then he puts a little, like plucks a leaf off and puts it in his crotch. And he's like, this is Hollywood girls. Um, 
Rob huh. covering his mouth right now is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm just rock tumbling that one around in my brain a little bit. <laughs> it was, like, it was, okay. How did it was a PR it was, not tackle him yeah. to the ground? It was, it was, it was a different time, right man. Well, they were, they were at a bar drinking and he was drinking yeah. with a details reporter for fuck's sake in 2002. Oh my God. Like, I'm sure Holy the PR person is like, oh, this is gold, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, charming. I mean, everyone I showed, you know, everyone that read this article was just like, Colin Farrell's great. He can do no wrong. Yeah. I was that way for fuck's sake. But like, Colin Gong Lee would like, you know, like, like, okay, we'll definitely sleep with Colin Farrell. I don't remember where I was going with this anymore. Fuck. Well, I think, look, once once we got lost in his crotch with the potted plant. Yeah. Uh, where do you go was, from there? It was hard also, to. Also, what bar in the night, like the early aughts in LA has a potted plant on the table? Fuck. Oh, I can see it, though. I can see it. Like right. it, it, like it's a, it's a hangover, a hangover of '90s decor. I think. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, like they are not in a trendy bar; they're in a quiet bar. Yeah. Uh, but, so, but there is a scene in my advice the TV series that kind of echoes this, which is the Tubbs and the cartel guy's daughter yes. falling in love over a five-minute right. period in that two-parter. And I feel like this is almost like a response to that of being like, "Okay, you thought that was unbelievable. Check this shit out." Yeah, because this woman is like the COO of like the drug yeah. of Cartel Incorporated. I swear and to God, for the longest time, I thought Gong Li was in on him being a cop and that that was going to be the reveal. That she secretly all along was just looking for her out. That she had no way out of this cartel because she was kind of like wifed up on Montoya. And she was like, well, I'm not actually married, but like I'm kind of wifed up on this like, you know, drug dealer who runs all of the fucking drugs and is the scariest motherfucker on earth, even though Kieran Hines is actually a Dracula and should be scarier. But he should have probably cast him as the drug dealer, even though he's Irish. But whatever. Who does that matter? He's Fujima. Um, (laughs) But like, I really thought that like she was going to be in on this all the time. Like some kind of twist. Like, yeah, like she knew somehow because there's no reason to just want to fuck Colin Farrell when you're responsible for like a multi-million or, dollar drug enterprise. Or go along with his increase. Like, again, one day yeah. ago, he's like, hey, found all those drugs that mysteriously stolen last week today. Like after you guys have made out in the coffee shop. So <laughs> what if you cut me in as a full percentage partner? on your entire operation and make all your operations in South Florida run through us. By the way, we'll guarantee your risk. These are insane terms. How, how, how about it? And she's like, all right, like we can, we I'll can take it back deal. to my boss. Yeah. Uh, that again, just like one red flag after another, even aside from the, like, is this guy a cop or not? Can he be trusted? You know, even setting that aside, the guy comes across as like wildly grotesquely ambitious uh, to like for, for for not, not for no good reason, but in ways that just do not suggest a stable business partner or no, a never trust a motherfucker this hungry. Are you kidding no. me? No, in ways that feel very small time for an yeah. organization like this. Yeah. Uh, right. And he, he offers things that sound big time, like, well, guarantee your risk, but like, you can't. That's the nature of this business. You can't make promises like that. Like basically you are saying, I'm going to stick my head in this lion's mouth and eventually it's going to kill me because <laughs> uh, I couldn't couldn't follow through uh, on this. But she goes along with with all of this. Uh, she she takes it back to uh, Montoya. I, I think 
the only line I find I found hard to understand actually is this one because it's an because it's an idiom. Mm-hmm. It is as he outlines that Yero doesn't trust them, and he says he like Yero thinks we should pay them and uh, prom- like promise them silver and pay them in lead. And I think this is great. She knows that if she betrays how much this horrifies her, it will happen. You know, it will give it will give the game away. So she deflect she acknowledges that like yes she slept with this guy to sort of sample the merchandise as it were and figure out like what makes him tick but you know it's nothing to her if if they decide to kill this guy maybe it'd be you know we we can trial this a, a bit further and that saves crockett and tubs lives it, it allows the the game to go on but she but she repeats back to him you know if you you know we can always try this out and, and later we can always uh you know pay them pay them in lead uh, which again, like everything around Montoya, uh, feels like it is like they are they are words, idiomatic sayings, uh, you know, coming from a different a different world to us. Uh, and I think that's right. the that's the only line I stumble over, mostly because that is not something I've heard said before. But by God, I love it. Uh, the that that way of describing like uh, that sort of bait and switch. Uh, so. You know, the, the deal goes forward. And in the meantime, we get really our only allusion to this other theme that we saw in the TV show of like, hey, can you be too undercover? Is it mm-hmm. bad for the spirit to be undercover this much? Because this is where they take their progress in the case back to Fujima and, and Castillo and outline why they need to stay under and continue running this operation. And there's one bit I like, which is. Crockett is out of pocket very early on in this conversation. He lashes out at Fujima and Jamie Fox turns and gives him a look that is completely convincing as a, Hey, I'm going to back your play here, but like you're actually the crazy person in this conversation. Like you are, you are, you are kind of freaking me out and you're sure as hell going to freak them out. They they get through the meeting, takes him aside, and he, you know, offers up that there is being under and then there is being so far under you don't know which way is up. And that's his his challenge to Crockett is, you know, do we still know uh again where we stand, where where this this operation is at, where we are uh as as people. And it's kind of a shame this movie can't because it can't invest enough time in that relationship. It can't really get at this potential breach between these two guys, which is that Tubbs never loses sight of what they're doing. And he has, you know, in in so many words, he has people on shore effectively that he's, that, that that he's tied to. Mm -hmm. So this is where I started playing the PSP game. Yeah. Um, because I, I I found out that it was supposed to be you know it was kind of a prequel to the movie, and I got nothing in regards to you know elucidating the relationship between the two of them in this movie. Suffice to say that the game has the two of them interacting so much more. Um, like sure. 
Uh, it's not a it's not a great game. It's fine. they did not voice. They did not get. No, they did fun. not no. voice. No, <laughs> for the PSP exclusive game. No, I don't Holy think so. Holy shit! Um, I don't even know what was going on with the like. Okay, to be fair, to be fair to uh, Colin Farrell who struggled um, with even just kind of a generic American accent at times. Um, the voice actors in the PSP game are not good and don't mm. even try to sound anything like Colin Farrell or Jamie Foxx. Um, but like, there's so much more interaction between Crooked and Tubbs in that. It's basically just like, what if, you know, what if Miami Vice, the original TV show was like cast with Colin Farrell and, and Jamie Foxx and um, looked kind of like a, you know, uh, an early Xbox game and played like a, you know, generic cover shooter version of Grand uh, Grand Theft Auto. Um, it's fine. Um, the story is about them taking down a drug dealer. Um, and like you just do that. It's very straightforward. It's very kind of procedural uh, Miami Vice episode that way. Um, but like, there is no, the thing with this movie is that like, we, we get these moments where clearly there is a divide between the two of these characters that never gets realized, never gets, you know, ex expanded upon, you know, like the movie can't comment on like, like, is this like the deterioration of masculine partnerships and friendships after 9-11 or whatever the fuck? Like, what is going on here? Like, like it's trying to be the anti-buddy cop, buddy cop story. But like, it's not again, it's another thing it simply can't fully commit itself to. It doesn't understand. I don't know that it knows why Tubbs and Crockett are dissociated from one another. Right. Like it, it can't give us that. Like it's like it's like oh, is this like the aughts and now it's like bro, it's gay to be friends with your 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 partner. Like what what is going on here that like we are commenting on? Like because like I don't understand. Like you know why? Like okay, through throughout the movie, like you know, if we accept this movie as a commentary on and a reaction to, um, it's not the eighties, it's the aughts. Shit is real different now. Okay then what has happened to masculine friendships that are work relationships in that time? What is the contemporary reality of masculine partnerships? What is going on here? The movie doesn't want to answer that. The movie can't, the movie doesn't even want to touch it really. Like it doesn't, it certainly doesn't explore it in any sense. It's too busy with Jamie Foxx piloting a fancy like airplane with the propeller in the back to like yeah, but I'm care about cool. Like it's it gets the thing. It's cool as shit. But like again, even when oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, well, again, I think that kind of goes back to a little bit about this movie's, you know, underlying need to emphasize what it thinks is cool about this era, which is to say that I don't think it does necessarily understand what is cool about the aughts. Not that there was necessarily a lot cool about the aughts, but Cops are coming now to tell me that uh, th actually the odds were very cool. Um, but <laughs> translucent plastic, man. Yeah, but like it's. <sighs> I feel like the big problem is that it just it's a signal that the filmmaker ha still has his finger on the pulse and not it is not unwilling to actually demonstrate anything beyond that. It is a lot of signaling toward things. It is a lot of gesturing toward things. But like you, but like you said, 
it doesn't ever quite figure out a way to portray any of that stuff because the movie doesn't actually care about portraying it. It is literally just here to say, no, I've still got it. I still know what you think is cool. Well, it's the Xbox director of marketing, not the Xbox players. idea. Yes. cool. There's a, a really good point, head. though. Here Hands that, above his head. Let's mm-hmm. go. No, I mean, you make, you make a good point here that, you know, if we had a, if, if there's a through line we could point to basically to uh, a lot of man's career to date, it is about alienation and masculine friendship. But like by the time, like the, in, the, the insider and collateral are back to back films that are entirely about relationships between men. Uh, and you know, the, the wanting to be able to crack that shell and, and like connect to a peer, connect to a guy on that level. Like he, he builds toward that moment. So it's one of the, you know, it's the sort of misconnection that's central to the film. And, and you're right. Miami vice in some ways maybe should be the story of Crockett betraying Tubbs' trust in, in some way, a guy that has become so lost in the work of being an undercover agent that he he misses these these warning lights that Tubbs is is throwing him as he sees that like you are not, hey, you are not you are either not being honest with me about your 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 feelings or you are not aware of them. That you have become dangerous because you are out of step uh, with, with with yourself and and how you truly feel, but that never does come to a head in this movie. The relationship doesn't have that room to breathe, nor are there any real consequences for, like you know, there's that Miami Vice uh, episode where <laughs> the, the fucking God, what was the episode? We we talked about it. It was the really bad kids in their convertible. Uh, with oh the yes, fucking spray painted the punks. Yeah. Uh, was it like born to die or something like that? It was worse than mm-hmm. that. The graffiti they painted on that car. But, you know, one of the things that runs through that is Crockett is completely absorbed in a relationship. He's not there for Tubbs when Tubbs needs him and Tubbs gets uh, the shit kicked out of him. Okay. There needs to be like, it feels like this movie needs, wants some kind of like equivalence to that, but it, it, it never comes up because in some ways, Crockett get like the fact that Crockett has lost sight of his loyalties or what he's doing here never actually comes back to bite him. There's no, no like it plot it wise, puts, there's no consequences for it. It puts that on Trudy. Like that's the thing is the movie puts the consequences on Trudy, but Trudy has no connection to Crockett. Well, and I, I would say it's not even, Crockett's fault what happens because all he does is dance too sexy with yeah. Isabella and Yarrow is like she betrayed Jesus oh I would yearn oh I would yearn uh, to to be where she sits uh, you know at, at the right hand of Jesus I will I, I, I will punish her for this this is how he figures it out is through his like transfer jealousy of Isabella onto Crockett and that's what brings the entire thing into focus. But it's not actually a slip up on Crockett's part, really. It is just that, like they can't keep it on the down low enough. There is no Crockett makes an active choice yeah. to prior like to prioritize things wrongly uh, no, in this. It's so funny because like 
you know, like I, I'm like like looking at this and we have this like weird Shakespearean romance between Crockett and Isabel. And it's just like where like there needs to be a letter or something. Yes. Like I'm like I'm like completely like, you know, um like <laughs> this, this movie badly needs the scene where Castillo shows up and there is a little known herb from Colombia. Many do not know its properties, but here's how we will this is how we will trick Jose Yero into thinking you are dead. Like I'm so like T.S. Eliot pilled about this fucking romance where I'm like, no, there needs to be an objective fucking correlative for the relationship between you know, you know, fucking like Gogli and 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 Colin Farrell, and there isn't one, and so Yero can't fucking discover it, and so like instead we have this bad footage of them just dancing sexy together, which like whatever. And like, really, <laughs> he's secretly club. in love with. Like, I'm like, well, yeah, wow. They watched Strictly Ballroom once, and they're having themselves a good time. Wow, right, great. And like, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just like, I'm like, I, I am just like, I'm just like, no, this is man's greatest creative <laughs> failure. Uh, it, I expected when he shows when he shows Jesus the footage, and he's like, I implore you, please, just look at look at this. I expect it would have been very funny if he gets killed because it's like it's totally a sign that Jose's lost his mind. Right. It's like yes. here's some completely what? chaste dancing happening at my weirdly dull club. And uh, it wouldn't no- have it wouldn't have been out of line with the movie if like Euro did just get like popped in the head right then and there because the entire movie is set up to make him look like a jackass when he's completely fucking right time and time again. But also the movie can't commit to this being a movie about how Euro is wrong, no. you know, or his is, is, is wronged, I should say, because he is right time and time again. He is. He's the only one that has his finger on the pulse of anything in this movie. And ironically, he is the most put upon character in all of it. But to to the point you mentioned earlier about Trudy kind of getting the brunt of a lot of this stuff and sort of the fact that there is no real consequence for the ways in which Crockett's behavior fucks up their case, possibly gets almost gets Trudy killed, all this stuff. A braver version of this movie is specifically about the breakup between Crockett and Tubbs. Yeah. It is yes. about them starting out as the kinds of characters you knew in the TV show, and then the movie slowly unraveling that in the era they are in, that kind of chucklehead, undercover, fucking flashy bullshit just cannot work anymore. And it actually ruins that relationship to a degree to where the end scene of Crockett showing up at the, at the hospital and with his tail between his legs after sending Isabella, after ditching out on that gunfight at the very end without telling anyone and sending Isabella on, That off. was garbage time. He, yeah, he that was garbage time. the sidelines now. I know. I'm just saying, it's like, that is a, there's a real emotional thing you could connect that scene to that the movie does none of the legwork to make happen. By yes. the time they get there, him and Tubbs are still just right as rain. Like, they've had a few arguments, but there's nothing, there's no real conflict between them and i think that is maybe the greatest failure of these portrayals and of these versions of the character is that there's no instinct whatsoever to try and even turn that relationship a little bit it, it not only can it not figure out how to way to turn them into versions of crockett and tubs in 2006 that make any goddamn sense but it can't even make a comment on what that relationship would be like in this era they're just guys who have worked together for a while and some stuff goes wrong, but then it's all okay. And that's nothing. It's just nothing. Yeah. So 
The other thing, uh, Dia, you alluded earlier to your suspicion or your, your gut feeling that like there's going to be a reveal that like Isabella knew all along. To me, the moment where I feel like on some level she totally knows what is going on is when after the the dance, the, the, the dance that sort of has turned out to betray them, but they don't know yet. They're walking along the waterfront. And he does the whole like do you have money stashed away? Like asking all the questions like, Hey, so if the feds had, for instance, tells her, Hey, I have massively betrayed you and you are wildly <laughs> at risk. Would you be okay if that's the case? And could maybe we still hook up afterwards? It's like so all bad. the flags are there, oh but God. she gets the only, she gets the only like, Again, she's like the only poetry that's in this movie is she gives him the time is luck. Uh, like this is her philosophy, and, and this she becomes a very uh, a very man protagonist, right? Of mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the, this sense that I'm not too bound to these things because it is all so it is it is also delicate. It's also contingent on so many things. It can disappear overnight, and she is willing to accept life on those terms. And and she's had to. Uh, but, you know, in some ways, that is a that is a response that lets him off the hook in in, in a lot of ways as, as well. That it is not him doing this to her. It is that she already accepts on some level. This is just the nature of the world. And one way or another, this will happen. And I think we're, what's missing is a little bit of that. Um, you know, a movie I think quite highly of uh, Donnie Brasco, mm-hmm. the relationship between. Uh, Depp and Pacino's character, you feel every ounce of that like sickening betrayal. Like Depp's, the the degree to which you feel horrible for what pa- was going to happen to Pacino because of this friendship. When Pacino this, gets sent for, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the honest to god like love between these characters, uh, and it doesn't shrink from that. That entire movie is about you're going to do this guy like that, and he's going to pay the the price for this great undercover operation and you're going to get a check and a medal and will it all been worth it? Right. What a a good movie. Yes. But here he's basically like, I'm a fad. And she's like, it's cool. We live in a world of, of mischance and and sadness. So whatever happens is fine. And that really defangs later when she sees him putting on the badge in the middle of the gunfight like yes she she has her moment of like you son of a bitch like who are you who are you but this whole scene is is screaming that i'm not who i say i am and i've already cost you everything yeah so i guess you know you could coming into this point of the movie we could feel bad for jose yero because fundamentally he has done nothing wrong he's been right about everything for jose yero i mean Nothing wrong for a murderous cartel guy is maybe not the right phrasing. But yes, I know what you mean. He's right about the things that he's saying. But to really hammer home how awful he is, what is the weapon he wields stateside? The Aryan Brotherhood. Yes, true. And so he turns them loose on Trudy, and they have been his sort of, uh, you know, Praetorian guard for this operation uh, in, in Miami since the start of this movie. And so they... Kidnap Trudy, and again, they do the Smuggler's Blues thing of uh, trying to extort uh, Tubbs and Crockett uh, on on this run in order to have them turn over the goods and then surrender themselves to 
uh, to Yero's judgment. And we get the surprisingly easily they figure out where Trudy is. Uh, they've, they've got the, the full, you know, power of federal and state law enforcement. Uh, there's enough clues. They, they quickly unravel where in this trailer park, uh, she is. We get the, we get the quiet, stealthy, like takedown of the, the guards they, they left on her, which is, which is pretty easy. Like the thing that, the thing that this is very clear is, uh, this is a very like low rent street gang in some ways. They this this part of the operation they run across and like they, like they have manpower, but they are not particularly well kitted out or outfitted to deal with anything that isn't just inflict right. violence on people. And the Miami Vice crew like goes through them like a knife. Yeah, uh, just like just absolutely cuts through them. We get the we get the cool scene of uh, yeah, where where they're holding the. Well, crucially, it's not a dead man switch. If it were a dead man switch, this might have been trickier. Yeah. But it's the dude holding the detonator uh, with his thumb over the button, thinking that, you know, he can get to it uh, if they shoot him and and kill everyone. And we get uh, Elizabeth Rodriguez uh, giving the giving the speech of that's not what's going to happen. Like it's going <laughs> this. I'm going to sever your spine before the thought can even occur to you. And then does exactly that as he, as he still hesitates. But the punchline to all of this is you're like, well done. We rescued Trudy. Like they've got nothing over us. Now we, we have full freedom of action. We saved the day. And they're like, Hey, Trudy hang loose inside this trailer next to this thing you were tied to that was going to, that could explode. Uh, we're going to go and secure the area. And that's when Jose Aero gets spooked by the fact that nobody's answering the phone. He sees on the can on the camera feed that something's wrong. He blows up the trailer and Trudy gets blown up anyway. This made me so mad. Mm-hmm. This made me as mad as the roses scene. But this made me like, I, like, it's really, it's just like, I just like, like watching like these, these scenes, like, you know, in the same movie, I'm just like, Michael Mann, what is wrong with you? Like it's senseless in every way. Like, like it's, it she's pisses, a trained officer. It pisses me off. First of all, that we put Trudy in this position. Yes. That we've taken the character Trudy Joplin of Gertrude, big booty Joplin. And put her in the position where she is just damseled. And like the only time she really gets to be like, you know, hardcore is when she dresses down um yep. the one motherfucker Swipe in his condo. Yeah. 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 Like right. and that by the way, that's the only she's the only character who sounds like she's in a fucking Miami Vice episode at that uh-huh. point. This whole movie. Oh, yeah. She's the only character who sounds like a Michael Mann character at like at any juncture. Like she has a handle on the dialogue and the delivery the way that a man character should um, way better than just about any other actor in this movie. Including the moral indignation of, yeah. hey, who are you to doubt us? You're a piece of shit. One, he was like, why does this keep happening to me? And that great line delivery of, because you lead a life of crime. <laughs> yeah. But, but two, the like, hey, we're the people who always keep our word. You're a piece of shit. Like you, like you do not get to cast doubt and aspersions on us after years of us having your back. Uh, no, she like you're you're right. Like wasted casting of a terrific Naomi Naomi Harris uh, in, in this movie, and then to have it pay off in this damsel twice over. They 
they have the scene where they rescue her and then she still has to be in jeopardized because crucially, like they also want the scene of her being in a coma and like Tubbs being confronted with that. It it sucks. It, yeah. Like it is it, like the movie can't pick between two directions for the plot to go. Picks both. And this is where I think it turns the entire thing into like tragic comedy in some yeah. ways of just like these cops are buffoons. We went to all that. And you left her inside the fucking yeah, trailer to get blown that's up. That's the thing that makes no sense to me. I'm like, okay, you know, if this was like someone who was like, you know, in a car rack, they would be pulled out of the car and they'd have wrapped in the, the gray flannel blanket and like seated inside of like, you know, an emergency vehicle and been like, it's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. Here's psych services. They're coming here. We're going to take your blood pressure and get you fluids and blah, 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 blah. And like, no, here we get Naomi, like Harris is just kind of stumbling around inside a fucking double wide meth lab. Because yeah. of course, like Florida, Michael Mann's make my decision Florida. Well, we have to have white supremacists running a meth lab in a trailer park. Sure. Like, that's that's Florida. And that's believable to a degree. <laughs> but the fact that like this woman who is a trained officer and these other trained officers who again just fucking surgically dismantled these people to, to prevent an explosion from going off, none of them would think to say, hey, maybe don't hang out in the room next to the explosives we just disarmed. Like, Jamie Foxx is not there with his arm around her, like, come on, baby, it's going to be all right. We're going to get you out of here. Like, like, even if you take the we have to secure the area thing at face value, you bring her to a bush, like, t- like 30, 40 feet away from the building, yeah. Part and of you the put a guard the- next to her. Part of securing the fucking area would be getting the like, you know, the person who has been traumatized and kidnapped to safety aware away from all of that and get the bomb squad in there to actually dismantle the explosives. Yeah, it's 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 an absurd decision. It's entirely to set up Tubbs crisis of faith as they go to the hospital. We get the you know, she's in pretty bad shape. We don't know if she's going to survive. And sort of his arc ends here, which is the question of like. What is the point of this? Is he and I and I do think this this bit is okay where where he sort of says the part that is eating at him is the idea that she will lose her life for this shit. And the realization that it just it does not matter to Tubbs in that way. And it, it, it you know that the significance of their work uh does not justify what they're sacrificing, what they're putting risk. It's not it's not a good enough reason to 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 lose a life. Uh, and that's that. That's yep. pretty much it for like, you know, Crockett's like, yeah, wow, pretty heavy, brah. And then it's on to the next bit, which is we got to kill these uh white supremacists and Jose Yero. And now here's here's the thing we haven't gotten to. Uh, but famously, at some point in this movie, Jamie Foxx's and Michael Mann's relationship falls apart. There is apparently a shooting on a set or a robbery on a set that they were using for location. At that point, Fox really did not want to go back to the locations they were using and wanted to shoot the rest of the film stateside. Uh, didn't want to be on boats uh, in this in this movie. And so, like, didn't want to, like, do stuff on the water, which was tough for kind a of a Miami- big part of the movie. Yeah, tough for a Miami Vice film. But, like, things just kind of, like, fall apart between Fox and man in, in all this, my suspicion is a lot of it is less about the specifics and more 
this would be Fox's third movie with man. And there's a reason this guy does not have many recurring collaborators in lead roles. Well, there's uh, that, but I mean, there's other stuff there where like Fox had just gotten his Oscar nomination around, like around the time he signed on for this. And there was a pay gap between him and Colin Farrell that he was very much not happy about to begin with. And oh, that's so weird because yeah. like to think that he wouldn't have been the primary draw there. Well, so that's the thing. He wanted first billing and he wanted like basically to be private jetted around everywhere for this film. And while I do think he was big timing a little bit, I think the stuff that man was potentially putting the crew through in some regards probably exacerbated that by several orders of magnitude, because in addition to the, the thing with the robbery on set, which I think was when they were filming in the Dominican Republic, uh, they were filming in parts of, of Miami and using gangs as security for the set. Like there was a lot of, we are trying to evoke gritty realism by literally bringing you to places where the cops don't go, where the buses don't run. Uh, and that was really freaking out a lot of crew members in addition to the cast. And so I think at a certain point there was a fracture there where both like Fox's stature and man's way of working just exploded on each other. And there was just no way that they were going to be able to repair that. I don't think you could be Jamie Fox, like achieving his Zenith and like on a Michael, as a, as a Michael Mann, like, you know, main character. Like, no. I don't think those two things work together. Well, it, it, um, it did. It happened in collateral. And this, you know what I mean? This is the, this there's is literally the one, a two year window basically yeah. between when Jamie Foxx was still fairly humble, still on the come up, still doing really well, but like not necessarily big timing anyone and him basically just turning into Willie Beeman. The, Oh, there's one other wrinkle. Uh, there was also a hurricane that year. Yes, there were uh, like that, three, yeah, I think. Screwed up their shooting schedules as well. So ultimately, and this is where man does sort of say like, man has a sort of distance relationship from this film uh, in part because this is not the film he set out to make. Like right. they had to significantly rewrite the script to have everything resolved stateside, onshore, at a safer location than what he initially conceived of. By all accounts, there was a whole like, Colombian army storming the Montoya compound type finale, which also doesn't quite feel like it fits with what is going on in this movie. So I'm not sure that necessarily would have been better. But either way, if, if it feels odd that a movie that has been this cinematic in places and had this sense of sense of sweep in places and effectively in a parking lot uh, next to a wharf, it is because of this. Now, admittedly, it's a very Miami Vice parking lot and wharf, like multiple oh, yeah. gunfights in the TV show happened either at this exact place or nearby. Oh, yeah. Something very close to like, it. This yeah. feels like the end of a Miami Vice episode, but it is not the end to the movie that, that man wanted well, to make. It's so funny because it feels like a Miami Vice episode, except for the fact that it's actually just shot in darkness instead of, like, you know, Miami Vice would just do this in broad daylight. Well, well, I mean, and this is the thing, right? This is, this is man fully, uh, being taken by how much digital now opens things up like you know apparently he felt like you know collateral even maybe was was overlit for for him he really now wanted to lean into oh he's in night mode shit. Oh, yeah, he's this in is nightman well, well it's so funny because like you know like the the jerry bruckheimer version of this would be like you know oh we'd all show up and it's dark at like you know the wharf and everything like that but then 
floodlights that don't exist would kick on. Yep. It'd be like stadium it, lighting. Right, exactly. And it would be like a fucking football stadium. <laughs> it was like Jose Yero would come out and be like, you're in my trap. Click. Uh-huh. And you hear uh-huh. the Transformers power up. And yeah. yeah. But also, that would be sick as shit. It would be very cool. Be way better, way sicker than what we got. Yeah. Which is a gun battle between two lines of parked cars. Uh <laughs> And mostly but, people standing still while getting shot. Well, okay. And my favorite thing is we get like, you know, Elizabeth Rodriguez, who just in the scene before this was like, I could fucking put a bullet and you're like the medulla of your like brain in like 1.8 seconds and you will drop and you won't even know that your body is dead. And like, and here she can't hit the fucking broadside of a barn. Most of the people here can't. It's, it's, it's wild. It is like a weird, (laughs) like just bullets go everywhere zone. Michael Mann loves him precise economical violence, but he also loves him a big eighties gun battle where people just shoot for hours. And <laughs> Those two things should not be back to back, hit. though, is yeah. the thing. They yeah. should never be, like, adjacent to one another. <laughs> well, hang on. Like, those 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 Aryan Brotherhood guys, you know, maybe they, you know, those those big block engines, bulletproof, like, they were using cover. I'm sure they were just tactical. Uh, but before we get to that, though, he reprises uh, In the Air Tonight. Fuck this. Fuck, Fuck this. this. So in I the was theatrical so version, mad. real quick, in the theatrical version, they only play this over the credits. Right. And I was that was good. That was the correct decision. Yes. This was this, this was sucks. wrong. In the director's cut, yes, they do do the full drive through the Miami streets to the scene of the fight. And it sucks. It's not a good cover. It's a bad cover. So nonpoint is the band here that is uh butchering this song. They are on the new metal scale. I'm going to say somewhere above a taproot, but below a seven dust. Like they are not quite runoff, but they are definitely not a band you would ever give a shit about if you were like cataloging what mattered about new metal. And I'm not saying that getting a better new metal band would have solved this problem. I think the whole concept was pretty rancid from the get go, but this is like a, this feels pretty bargain basement for I'm going to get a band to cover this iconic Phil Collins song that basically is the thing everyone associates with the TV show this movie is based on. It It is, you could not have gone much cheaper than this. You could have at least gotten fucking Audio Slave. Seriously. They would have done it, I bet. Dude, Chris Cornell uh, in the air tonight would have been fucking sick. I would have, I would be there for that. At least he would have the emotional heft to deliver those lines. Yeah. This guy doesn't have it. He doesn't no. have the juice. No, it's bad. And like like the the like you know everyone like the thing that you think of when you think of in the air tonight is the fucking gated drums. Yes. Without the gated drums you don't have that song. And like it's just we get just kind of like sad bullshit little like new metal bullshit drums and it's like what? It's What's happening? Sounding. Why are we here? It sounds like a wet fart. Fuck off. Go to it's go awful. to hell. It's it's awful. And like again, new metal. A lot of it is fairly unjustifiable. Though there is some of it I will defend in this world. But like <laughs> new metal covers as a as almost as a uniform concept are just inherently either hilarious or offensive. One of the <laughs> two. This is not hilarious. Like faith. 
Limp Bizkit Faith, that's hilarious. This is not that. It's also not quite offensive, but it's pretty Except in bad. the context of this movie. In the no, context of this problem. movie, it's offensive. <laughs> yeah. Because it is such... Because it is, in, in the process of doing this cover, man is also covering himself much, 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 much worse. It's uh, shameful. It's, it's shameful. Michael Mann should be ashamed of himself for doing this. This is the kind of shit that I expect from Kevin Feig Star Wars movies. Yeah. This is And at least Disney would spring for a better band. Yeah. So we get the Jizz cover of In the Air Tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jesus fucking Christ. Uh <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> Just Max Rebo going ape shit uh, on his little synth drums. Like, this is in the same ballpark as that new metal cover of Take Me Out to the Ball Game that was in that fucking Midway MLB game from, like, 2003. Like, it's that level of pathetic. And the gunfight, what I will say for it is, as always, the audio pr- mixed pretty well in a Michael Mann yeah. movie. The action sequences, like, it all has great pop. It is just not dynamic. No. Like, it is... It is a bunch of people lined up behind cars, blasting away at each other. And there's a lot like there was something that was really bugging me is uh, they do the whole exchange where Isabella walks across like to to verify that the goods that uh, that the swap is on uh, Herc from the wire uh, goes across <laughs> to verify like that the you know the the money is there or whatever. And so he's trapped behind the the line of of Euro's men. He's at the back of this SUV during this entire gun battle. And he just hangs out back there. And at a certain point, you're like, how is nobody shooting at him? How is he not killed all these dudes? Like, how is he not moved from that position? It's just it's all very static. Nobody moves in this gunfight except the one dude, like, you know, runs across and gets shot in the leg and, and rolls to cover. It's just it is it is inert. It's, it's the most Miami Vice scene of the movie. Yeah, it is. Fair. It does feel like a TV gun battle, 100%. But it also, it feels like a scene that was thrown together. Yeah. And the way, the reason there's no real choreography and the reason that there's no real dynamism to the shots is because they were probably just trying to get it done as quickly as possible. And they didn't want to run the risk of any of the shots not lining up with the action, that like the direction, like trying to piece it all together in editing. I mean, it's pretty easy to edit together a scene of people just standing in one place and shooting. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mm-hmm. you capture the moment where they get shot and and that's that. That's that. And and that is that is how all this this unfolds. But during the fight, you know, as the SWAT team shows up late, like after the fight's basically won, you see Crockett put on the detective shield and get on the radio, and that's when Isabella realizes who he is. Crockett runs down Yero and like shotguns him into a million pieces. He totally gets like kind of scarfaced there. And Crockett leaves with Isabella and we get the <laughs> the oh, this woman's completely hysterical. Got to slap the shit out of her. Uh, and what to like what, the Battlestar Galactica soundtrack? Oh, my God. Like, what is with what is this scene? I don't know. What is this scene? What is the What is the weird fucking Battlestar Galactica drumming for this scene? I I don't get it. Like, and it's weird because like it is like a. We're like almost like, you know, calling back to the original highway shoulder scene from the start of the movie. Yeah. But like what? 
the what? score the score in this movie the non-licensed parts of the soundtrack i feel like is kind of uniformly terrible like it just doesn't it doesn't really evoke much of anything and in the pl- places where it does kind of rise up and sort of make itself known it feels very out of step with the action well like this and like in collateral it like it really feels like we've entered into the like michael mann's xbox era of filmmaking yeah and yet he won't not score these scenes is the funny thing because you would think with mm-hmm. like the yeah. documentary uh, approach he's taking with a lot of this, you think he'd actually be more comfortable with just a flat, like, you know, silent uh, section of the film in some ways. And he just, he just isn't uh, for, for whatever reason. Things get back Which on we- track. I would say once he gets her out to the keys, yeah, they go to that deserted, uh, you know, basically they, they react to the, sh- the shot from the searchers, uh, you know, where they approach this barred and dusty and abandoned house that, you know, allegedly is used an occasional safe house. But but really, it's it's not, it's not a house at all. It's a, it's a dead place. And this is where they are going to basically wait out the end of of their relationship as he, you know, confesses who he is. She lets it go in, in part because i guess yeah and there's it, it, what's done is done uh and what now the, do about it the next stage is she has to be sort of shipped off to cuba uh by his friends like a tactical team they're gonna put her on a boat and and get her out of there and we get the you know we we see that montoya's palace is is also abandoned uh the you know somehow whatever it is the crockett and tubs have done has led to the army raiding his compound, but he's also already gone. This is, you know, his operation is effectively unimpeded. Uh, it's cost him Yero. It's cost him, you know, some of his, is, uh, you know, the, 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 the area. Assets, he works with. Yeah. But, but yes, like to, to Tubbs's point earlier, this is, this is kind of not had a meaningful impact, all this, all this effort. And then we get, uh, you know, the last sort of, iconic sequence in the film which is uh auto rock begins to play as we have the final montage of you know them waiting on the shore uh and them being like pulled apart uh trudy waking up in the hospital and reaching out for Tubbs's hand and crockett returning to the hospital to rejoin uh his people as it were as uh as isabella is is carried away on on, on a boat uh and the the funny like this all works for me i think it i, I think it is a cinematic enough and, and and sad enough ending that it sells me on a lot of how i feel coming out of this film in a way that some of the action maybe in the final act does not i think gives the movie the feeling that man wants you to take take out of the picture with maybe not necessarily earned but it is evoked uh, by this like final set of edits and the soundtrack. Yeah. I'm of two minds about this. And part of it is that I just, I look, I'm a Mogwai fan and it is what it is, but I do feel <laughs> like 80% of what works in this scene is being lifted up by that song and that sort of like oral composition around what is happening because yes. it is, it is just good enough to make you forget that everything that led up to this moment makes no fucking sense. But there is like a, like the parting scene of her on the boat as they are, she sails off and him kind of like walking back up the beach. 
in combination with the music, there is something there. But this is a case where I feel like the needle drop is literally doing all. It is a load bearing needle drop. (laughs) It is. It's so funny because at the same time, this movie put into place, you know, why I don't like Mogwai. Mm -hmm. And like, I I respect Mogwai. Sure. I do. But it's just, I just, I, it is music to tie in scenes that don't work on their own in movies. Yes. That's what a lot of post rock is, but you're it's right. Really, I mean, the yeah, Mogwai no, in particular, absolutely. You're right. Like, it is, it is, what is it? What is it? It is the purpose to post rock. Yeah. But like, Mogwai is so good at, you know, music for scenes that don't go together in films. Yeah. Um, And like, it's just, it's like, you know, my original thought of this movie was that Gong Li is too beautiful for a movie with this much incidental audio slave. Mm-hmm. But like, that's also why like the Mogwai over Gong Li in the mist on the like, you know, the the boat at yes. the end looking out with the pieces of her hair. I'm just like, oh my God, this is like the worst kind of white guy Orientalism. Yes. Yeah. You're not wrong because like, she just because she ultimately is just like, yes, I accept that time is luck. And of course, this is what I was fated to be. And not what any like a fully realized character would be doing, which is strangling him and drowning him in the shallows over what he has done. Dude, did we she, ever cover why she was such an incredible in, in, integral part of this fucking drug organization? Is? is she just the one who understood Microsoft Project? But like Euro kept being like, no, no, open office. Open office is the thing to do. Uh, hey, it's like, is it abierto oficina? I'm si, trying to think. Es bueno. <laughs> open a source. I'm trying to think back on like what she has actually demonstrated as a person in her role that makes her uniquely qualified. And there are like the two things I can point to are she clearly seems to have a very pragmatic notion of how this business is run. Granted, she makes some terrible decisions, especially around Crockett, but she seems to have like a good lay of how all the operations run. And she does speak multiple languages, which I'm sure becomes very useful in negotiations with various foreign actors. But like beyond that, she seems like she's slipping on banana peels through half this movie. You know, the 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 re- the, the regular movie, like the the you know, the 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 Syriana version of this yes. movie. She is a Harvard Business School or like Wharton grad who speaks like 30 languages and she is like, you know, the corporate face of the drug trade. Yes. And here she's almost that but not really. She's and like most, she's mostly just a just a wife like who's yeah. really good at business. <laughs> that seems to be it. Like she there just the isn't much else. She's the wife who life. writes your cover letters for you and like yeah, updated yeah. your resume. It's just uh it's just so it's again, and I think part of what makes that scene just not work all the way for me is that none of it feels earned. If you think back on it for more than a second and you you <laughs> lose once you detach yourself from sort of the oral accompaniment and the 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 niceness of the shot of watching her be sad on that boat. It's completely fatally broken well before you even get here. And none of that stuff really makes any goddamn sense at all. There is a better version of this movie where this scene really has some emotional heft to it. And just none of the movie prior to that gets there at all. Also, this is like the 10th best maybe Mogwai song you could have picked for this. 
You're really on that, though. I am. I'm sorry. Like, there's better Mogwai. Like, you could have put, like, fucking play Devil Rides. Get some fucking yeah. Roki Erickson yeah. on there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's... I really, I really love the idea of, like, Michael Mann, like, just riding around in his car. <laughs> um, Trying like, to decide just, what Mogwai song to use? Like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, I actually, I think that song I mentioned was from 2008. But still, nonetheless, there are better Mogwai songs they could have picked. This is like, this is Baby's first Mogwai song. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. It, it, so, yeah, you guys, have, you guys have definitely convinced me more of the film's demerits, uh, a, a, as it were. I think there is so much of this that it just sort of alluded to, but not really well established. There's a lot that it kind of wants you to take on faith. Like the fact that she's a integral criminal mastermind, this whole operation. And Mm -hmm. yes, like it appears that her, the flaw in her death star, uh, is liking strung out dirtbag guys who seem like they're shoplifted. They, They go and shoplift at gas stations. Uh, like that's kind of, what brings Lots her of down? girls really do be like that, though, you know? It's just that it's maybe true. not on this scale. Maybe not. Maybe not. But, yeah, it is... Uh, I I think... I I enjoy... I enjoy a lot of the filmmaking direction he, he goes in with this film. I, I, I like how much it is uh, sort of a... I don't know. What is the way to put it? A, a film that is constantly sort of defying denying expectation for what you might expect from a Miami Vice movie. It's a movie that seems uh, much. I don't know. It's sort of the like going, when, we, when we back, when we went back and watched Miami Vice, I was actually struck by how often these themes of like, this is a never ending war that mm-hmm. inflicts a tremendous amount of collateral damage uh, to the people caught up in it and around it. And justice is very rarely served. And really, the people who benefit this by this are, are are not ordinary people. So the funny thing is, I, I think I also tend to view this as like a really like clever, subversive approach to my advice. But it's it's really not. All the subversion was there from the start. The the yeah. doubts about the drug war, the doubts about police, uh, all of that that was there. Uh, this just sort of hits those points in the dominant aesthetics of the time, but. Yeah, now coming to it in a run of like a lot of like great man films. Like, yes, if I'm being charitable, sure, I, I can say it's like kind of expressionist and in, in how it goes about this. But like his best works, like established character much better than this. They 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 keep motivation in mind. They they give characters some sort of ethos or some sort of like, you know, sense of interests that they are following and motivations. And this this movie really doesn't. It is a movie where things kind of happen because they have to. Uh, yeah. And it is in that, I think predominantly in it's like plotting and like the, the way it unfolds, it's slapdash in a way that, that man films are, are generally not. And as, as interesting as like the filmmaking can be in places that approach to telling the story uh, does, I think pretty thoroughly like knock it off the pedestal yeah. of like, mm-hmm. you know, man's best works yeah like i I had a similar reaction to you when we rewatched the series where i i definitely started to notice a little bit more of the ways in which 
it really does kind of hammer on the fact that the drug war is this, you know, incredibly, you know, arduous and basically pointless thing that will never actually get us what we want, which in, in the 80s was a pretty, you know, notable thing for a network television show to really hammer on. Yeah. And the thing is, I think the reason it was able to go down so easily is because of the fact that it was so deft at marrying that messaging to the aesthetic pleasures of the 1980s, the things that the audience would in, would definitely tune in for and then get the messaging kind of as the subversive aspect of it. Here, the only thing this movie gets close to, to in terms of subversion is denying the audience any kind of aesthetic pleasure for the most part. There are some nice shots. There is definitely some good hardware in there with cars and boats and planes. We never even said the word go fast boat somehow in this <laughs> podcast, but there are go fast boats and they say it a lot. But we also didn't say transshipment. We also did not say transshipment, which they which, also which, say a lot. Which for the record is just when you change the method of transportation midshipment. That's all it is. It's not that fucking interesting. I took a class on this shit and we didn't even say the word that much as this but movie it does. sounds cool. It oh, doesn't. I forgot it the part. I forgot dumb. the part. It's a ship. It moves on water. That's why they call it. Sh- that's why they call them ships. <sighs> I was like, stop moving into the apartment building. This sucks. It was so bad. That yeah, is, uh, it's uh, that is some fucking. And Jamie Fox tries so hard with that line too to sound like he tries to sound so hard with some of the stupid fucking lines that Michael Mann gives him in this movie, and it does. It's not the, work. It's, it the some, it's the that's why they call it money line without any of the conscious absurdity yeah. of it. And it, it, it hues closer to Halle Berry trying to say what happens to a toad when it gets struck by lightning. <laughs> the same thing that happens to everything else. Like it is a nonsense fucking line, and there's no way to make it cool. You just can't do it. But that's the thing. Again, I think the only thing this movie has that is even remotely subversive is the fact that it will not give you easy access to the excess and the pleasures and the aesthetics of old Miami Vice or anything even close to it. Modern equivalent. Because if you want that, go watch Bad Boys. Seriously. So the other thing that I, I think, you know, I'm pretty persuaded about is like this movie is just lost. It's in this movie, man does not get to and perhaps maybe has lost some of his deafness with like portraying relationships and like the crisis of like relationships between between men uh, and like, you know, these themes of alienation, because the next movie he makes after this is Public Enemies. Oh, boy. Which I have rarely been so sold in advance on a movie, uh, you know, Christian Bale, Johnny Depp, uh, Dillinger. Uh, the 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 shootout in in Wisconsin that like left a ton of people dead uh, and and it's basically a small war breaking out in the in, in the woods totally bought in on what this movie's going to be a Michael Mann period movie about like you know peak gangster and I will say that again even here we've been like well like now man's really pushing into the darkness with digital he's really in love with what digital will let you get away with at night with public enemies he goes hurtling beyond the bounds of the possible uh and makes one of the most incomprehensible movies i have or at least gives us one of the most incomprehensible shootouts i've ever seen i have not seen this movie since it came out I, I can't believe I'm the, watching a Johnny Depp movie in 2022. I but. know. I'm not thrilled about it, but I've got to <laughs> do it. But 
I, I, I remember thinking this movie was real bad. Well, and it is a movie that midway through, I think just basically loses interest in Christian Bale's character as like the, so what it's, uh, you know, you know, you might think you're in for a heat, uh, a gangster era heat type thing with the, you know, agent per Melvin Purvis, uh, going after, uh, after Dillinger. And, and that might be the, the tension that's movie revolves around midway through it. It's kind of like man decides, eh, Purvis isn't really doing it for me as a character. Uh, or maybe Bale wasn't doing, doing it for me as a performer, but you know, who is there? to to anchor the rest of this movie Stephen Lang and so midway through this movie with two of the biggest stars of their era Michael Mann appears as far as I can tell just to go and ride his war horse is and, it too know, late to pivot to being a Peaky Blinders podcast instead I think it might be I'll but... stand by two seasons of Peaky Blinders <laughs> gave us two good seasons I have to watch the rest. I haven't. Uh, it's it's t- like I love I love Killing Murphy like so much, but uh, that is a that becomes a that becomes a hard show to continue slogging through. Uh, <laughs> but and and I would I would say harder than than Public Enemies, which wow. is what we have coming up next. Oh. Uh, so so that is what we will dig into next time. Until then, thanks for listening and subscribing to Waypoint Plus and putting up with uh, all of our extremely specific bullshit.